We'll be in chapter 6, Song of Songs tonight. I'd like to tell you all before I pray one more time for the study, the words are almost too wonderful. And so I would ask that you all, as you listen, test everything. Because I kept saying, Lord, really? Really? (laughs) I kept... You know, asking him, I shared before, when you're singing a song or you're reading a poem, there's so much room for interpretation. And what I don't want to do is get out there in some weird place that is interpreting or in, interpreting into Scripture rather than receiving what it is that God has for us. And I think it's been obvious through this that there's a relationship being talked about between Jesus and the church, between Jesus and each of us as, uh, as his bride, as his wife, as his loved one. Uh, And you can see that throughout, but on the one hand, I don't want to go too far, but on the other hand, there's so far to go. (laughs) So please be reading, thinking through these things, double-checking, thinking about, yeah, that really really rings true, or or, no, it doesn't. Uh, I'm going to kind of leave it up to you to be discerning tonight as I teach, and I'm doing the best I can to, to just bring out what I believe to be is truly here. But again, it's it's so wonderful. Jesus, You are wonderful. Your name is wonderful. And we call You that knowing full well that uh, it is a name that defines or describes someone even beyond our full comprehension. And yet, Jesus, You came so that we could comprehend the Father. You came, God, in the flesh so that we could see the Lord. So that we could know you, God, in, in all of your form, in, as Father, as Son, as Spirit. And you proclaim the truth and explain so much to us, Jesus. And we truly are in love with you. As we sing tonight, as we worship, we, we are in love with you. And it's a place that we need to be. A place as followers of Jesus Christ. We need to be people who don't just say we love you, but we are in love with you. And I pray that the love that we have for you, um, Lord, would be on the increase constantly. I pray more, Jesus, that the love you have for us would overflow us. And so fill us up that we can't help but think about you all the time, talk about you all the time, and be aware of your presence moment by moment. Jesus, as we look at the words of the study tonight... You and I have talked about these things a lot over the last couple of days. I pray for truth. Pray for your word to be expressed as you desire for it to be expressed. And I pray that our hearts would hear, Holy Spirit of the living God, what you have for us tonight. So we need you to lead us and teach us and speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. I am my beloved's. And his desire is for me. After Sunday's teaching, Megan Stevens is Megan here tonight. Let's see here. Okay. Uh, after Sunday evening, and by the way, the Sunday evening service was great. It was well attended. There were a lot of people here, um, and it was such a blessing. And I encourage all of you, even if you want to be at the eight o'clock or the ten forty-five service on Sunday mornings. Take a Sunday evening and come on to the 5 o'clock because it's a different vibe, but it's very cool and I, I loved it. Loved it. And it was a great turnout. So God is already seeding yet another um, harvest, I believe, here in the barn. But Sunday evening, Megan was here and Monday, or may even have been Sunday night after she got home, but she posted an entire passage of Scripture on her Facebook page. 
and it popped up on my page. I saw it there, and uh, the, the description was that of um, the admiration by the bride of the groom, talking about Jesus, chapter 5, verses 10 through 16. And we looked at that on Sunday, line by line. She wrote the whole thing out. And then she wrote a one-sentence commentary, in her own words, of the whole thing. Let me just read you the last verse, chapter 5, verse 16, and Megan's one-line commentary. Chapter 5, verse 16, His mouth is full of sweetness, and He is wholly desirable. This is my beloved, this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. And Megan wrote, This is Jesus. And I read that and I thought, that is just so cool. So cool because she's absolutely right. That description, it's too glorious, too wonderful, too amazing to be applied to any man, even me. It is <laughs> clearly Jesus beyond the compare of any human being. It's amazing. And so she got it. She got it. And as you Bible students know, and i got to clarify this again, that's the point. The Scriptures are here to point us to Jesus. First and foremost, Jesus said, It is these that testify about Me, John 5.39. Revelation 19.10 tells us, The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. He's the point. Hebrews 1 verse 3 said, He is the radiance of His, that is God's glory, and the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all the things, all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is the greater than Solomon, and He is so vividly portrayed in the Song of Songs as we're reading through this, He's hard to miss. But some people do. It's amazing to me that some can sit and listen and hear all of this and still miss Jesus in the text. Miss Him in the heart of the song. And some are afraid of elevating Jesus to a place of equality with God. Now I'll admit to you all, I grew up kind of not sure if I could worship Jesus quite to the same level of God the Father, you know? I had that picture in my mind, perhaps some of you did at one time too, of God the Father, and then in the Trinity, a step down is Jesus, and then another step down is the Holy Spirit. And that's kind of the relationship, God is God and Jesus is, well, He's God, but a little bit lesser. And that's completely wrong. That's not what the Scriptures teach. It's not even what Jesus said Himself. Even His enemies knew what He was saying. They said in John 5.18, it says, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him, because He was not only breaking the Sabbath, according to them, but was also calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. That's what freaked out the Jewish leadership. He's making Himself equal to God. Exactly. And what did Jesus say? (laughs) Some say, stop talking so much about Jesus and just show us the Father. Well, that's interesting. Jesus said to to, uh, Thomas, I believe it was Thomas, could have been, no, it's to Philip. He said, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it's enough for us. Remember what Jesus said? Have I been with you so long and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the father. Not my words. 
Those are Jesus' words. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? (laughs) Right here. The exact representation of His nature. So we keep our eyes open to Jesus in the Scriptures as explained and expressed and represented. God represented by Jesus Christ in the flesh. And He's here. He is here in the Song of Songs. Jesus, our beloved. But tonight, for all of that intro, tonight we get to look at someone else, but through the eyes of Jesus. And it's pretty stunning. Someone else emerges. And it is not the bride anymore. Not even really the wife. Oh, she is the wife, but she's more. This is the Song of Solomon, the Song of Shloma, but in it, tonight especially, we begin to see emerging in her beauty, Shulamit. Shulamit. Now, some of your translations may say Shulamite, but in the Hebrew, the name given to her, the name that appears here in the text, and it will be a little bit further down in verse 13 of chapter 6, is Shulamit. Solomon means peace. Shulamit is Mrs. Peace. Okay? Shulamit, Mrs. Peace. In other words, it's the feminine form of the name Solomon. And she comes into her own tonight, amazing, the one-time swarthy woman of the vineyard who became the bride, who became the wife, but who had some fear, some trepidation throughout, has now become something more. More, perhaps, than we could have guessed, more than we could have imagined. In the fifth canticle, she now bears his name. She is Shulamit. But remember... Just as Solomon is the type of Jesus, so Shulamith portrays the church. And I believe it comes out so clearly tonight. The chorus opens up the fifth canticle. The chorus is wondering at her, looking at her. Verse 10 of chapter 6, the fifth canticle begins. Who is this that grows like the dawn? As beautiful as the full moon, as pure as the sun, as awesome as an army with banners. Now remember, the last canticle ended with him adoring her. Describing her to a degree, he's doting on her, and so naturally they turn their attention to her, and they wonder, who is this? And by the way, they've already asked this question before. If you go back to chapter 3 for a minute, chapter 3, verse 6. It says, what is this coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all scented powders of the merchant? Behold, it is the couch of Solomon or the palanquin of Solomon. But the word is not what in chapter 6. In the Hebrew, the word is literally who. Now the translators, they changed it to what? Probably because they see in verse 7 that what is being referred to is the palanquin, the traveling couch. And the traveling couch wouldn't be a who, it would be a what, Correct. But the Hebrew says, who is this coming up? And it says, it's the traveling couch. The traveling couch is not the issue. Who's inside is the issue. And as we talked about a couple of Sundays back, the people inside happen to be bride and groom. Who is that? Who's riding in there? It's the first time they begin to just get glimpses of Shulamith. She is riding with Solomon in that marriage procession. She's in the palanquin, and people are looking, and perhaps as they go by, uh, you know, the little curtains flutter back, and they can see there's someone in there. Who is that? Who is this, they asked. They were marveling at the procession 
because of who she was with. Now they marvel at her because of who she is. You see, Shulamith has grown like the dawn. Who is this that grows like the dawn? But the growth in this woman, in this beautiful loved one of the Beloved, is in many ways yet unseen. Her maturity, as you will see tonight, is absolutely impressive. Even right here, she doesn't blush. She doesn't pose for the paparazzi. She doesn't stop for a quick photo op. She turns the attention back to her husband. Back to her lover. She says in verse 11, I went down to the orchard of nut trees to see the blossoms of the valley, to see whether the vine had budded or the pomegranates had bloomed. Before I was aware, my soul set me over the chariots of my noble people. What is she singing here? Well, she's going back. She's going back to say, I realized where he was. He was in the garden. I went there to see him. I went there to be with him. We talked about that garden. The garden is is Shulamit. The garden is her heart. And when they asked the question back in chapter 6, verse 1, where has your beloved gone? As she was looking for him, she realized he's in the garden. Right here. He hasn't gone anywhere. But now in the poetry of the song she's singing, so I went to the garden to find him. I went down there to see him. And before I knew it, verse 12, suddenly my soul set me over the chariots of my noble people. What does that mean? Well... Verse 12 is considered by Bible scholars to me to be one of the most, if not the most, difficult verse to translate in the entire Bible. Hmm. But we can at least surmise from verse 11 that she went looking for her beloved in the garden. She found him there and suddenly she found herself lifted up above all the royalty. Somehow, whether she's placed in a chariot above all the royalty or, or, or this is speaking in, in pictures, it's a little unclear. But suddenly the chorus sings in verse 13, Come back, come back, O Shulamith. Come back, come back, that we may gaze at you. And then the Beloved says, Why should you gaze at the Shulamith? As at the dance of the two companies. Or some of your translations may say the Machanaim. What in the world is going on here? Well, since verse 12 is such a difficult verse to translate, you'll forgive me if I ask you to wait until Sunday for me to answer that question. So we're going to continue on tonight. We're going to come back and and hang out in that section on Sunday and really break it down. There are some marvelous things here yet to see. But watch this. She is in the place now where she's found her beloved. She is ecstatic. She is thrilled. She is so filled with joy, she begins to dance. To dance? Yeah. He says, why should you gaze at the Shulamit as at the dance of the two companies? She starts dancing for him in her joy, in her ecstasy. She's dancing for him. And by the way, we can't see it real well in the English, but throughout this entire section, the first nine verses of chapter 7, the Hebrew wording here, the word choices, the verb tenses, they all express action and dynamic motion. So even as he's describing her, he is describing her in motion. He is describing her as she dances. I'll give you an example. Verse 1 mentions the curves of her hips. Note that in your translation. The curves of your hips are like jewels. But the word curves in the Hebrew is hamuk. And hamuk literally means curving. The curving of your hips or the turning of your hips, or the vibrations of your hips as she dances before Him. 
But let me be clear, she's not dirty dancing. (laughs) She is displaying a joyful grace and beauty that is so alluring, he goes into another glorious detailed account of her beauty. But watch this. I believe it is Jesus describing the church. Watch it closely. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O prince's daughter. How beautiful are your feet in sandals. Now normally, when I'm uh, complimenting Cheryl, when I'm you know saying... Hey, you look nice today. I, I, I got to be honest, I rarely start with her feet. <laughs> rarely point out her feet. You know, your feet just, wow. I mean, how many of us look to the feet as the sign of beauty? But this is where he starts. And she's dancing, and her feet are in sandals. Another sign that she's dancing and not, you know, in slippers on the couch or, or barefooted in bed or something. She's, she's in sandals. She's up on her feet. And he just says, Your feet are beautiful. Beautiful feet. Oh, Prince's daughter. There's only three times in the entire Bible where feet are referred to as beautiful, and this is one of them. The other two refer to the same entity, which is why I believe this one refers to the same entity as well. Isaiah 52, verse 7 says, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, Your God reigns! Who is this? It's the church. That's what the church does. The church announces good news. It is our primary commission, our great commission, to bring the good news, to make disciples via the teaching of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are the bringers of the good news. We are the ones with the beautiful feet. Please don't look right now. We are those who bring good news. It's what the church does. And note this, Isaiah says, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. So the church encourages Zion, Israel. The church brings good news and we say to Israel, your God reigns. Your God is God. And don't the Jews need to hear that? Many Jews today have become secular Jews. They are Jewish culturally and not spiritually. And many of them, it's because they think God has either died or gone on to do something else because He has so little to do with them. Oh, how much they miss. Boy, when you look at Israel, when you look at the Jewish people, we can see how much they are blessed. It is absolutely astounding how this tiny country and this this minute group of people, truly a minority in the world, has such an impact on all things happening on planet Earth. This is a blessed people. And so part of our job is to announce, your God reigns. Paul said in Romans 10 verse 12, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then Paul says, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, third place, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. The three instances where feet are beautiful. Isaiah, Romans, and the Song of Songs where he cries out, How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O prince's daughter. It portrays the church and her mission. And notice this, he calls her, O prince's daughter. Wait a minute, prince's daughter? I I thought she was kind of the daughter of tenant farmers, maybe sharecroppers in Ephraim. 
You know, a rented out field from Solomon. Working in the vineyard. We don't even know who her father is. We know her brothers are mean enough to force her to go out and work every day. And so, Prince's daughter? What's he talking about? She may have been a daughter of a sharecropper, but she's not anymore. She now has the sandaled feet of nobility. As Hannah sang when she realized that she was going to be blessed with a child, Hannah, who was the mother of Samuel, she said in 1 Samuel 2.8, He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and He set the world on them. And when He says, Oh, prince's daughter, the word princes there is Nadib in the Hebrew. It means princely, noble. It also means willing, generous, and free. Willing, generous, and free. Beautiful are the feet of those who are generous with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Beautiful are the feet of those who are free with the good news of salvation and grace. And Paul commands that all believers should be, Ephesians 4.15, shod, we should shod our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O prince's daughter. The curves of your hips are like jewels, the work of of the hands of an artist. Remember, she's in motion. The curving, the vibration of her hips is being described as she dances. He sees her beauty, her form, and he credits it to a master artisan in the same way the beauty, the form, the dance of the church is a credit to our master artisan. Paul said in Ephesians 2.10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And put it this way, we were made to move in the glory of God. Made to move in the glory of God. Our lives a dance of worship. But we're supposed to move together. We're not supposed to be dancing in all different directions as a church, as a fellowship, as believers. We are to dance together. Like the joints and ligaments of hips and thighs moving in the middle of the body. So Paul describes the church. He says in Ephesians 4.15, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by which every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. That's how the church is called to dance. Together, moving together, connected, every joint, every ligament, working together that the body would be unified in this most holy dance of joy. We don't always dance like that. In fact, I think sometimes our dance is a little more like some of the high school dances around here. I won't go into that right now. Verse 2, your navel is like a round goblet which never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is like a heap of wheat. I would get slapped if I said that. <laughs> a heap of wheat fenced about with lilies. Again, this, this would be offensive to us, but of course we live in an anorexic culture. But it speaks of a woman who is, in Middle Eastern culture, voluptuous. She's got a little meat on her bones. And she's got a physique that is 
very often admired, even still in the Middle East. Physically, he's saying, be real here, he's saying the effect of seeing her midsection in motion is is both stimulating like a fine wine and it's inviting like a platter of golden wheat to a hungry man. He's looking at her dance, he's going, I want my wine and I want my Wheaties. <laughs> Stimulating and inviting. Shulamith is like a feast set before her husband. You know, if I was talking about this kind of thing outside of, of the spiritual sense and especially outside of the church, people would probably go, okay, here we go, it's going to be pornographic. You know, it's marvelous that when we recognize how God created us, man for woman, and in our marriages that we can look at and and understand these things from the Scriptures and say, it's just beautiful. It's just absolutely beautiful. She is like a feast set before her husband, a banquet table set with a goblet of mixed wine and a platter of wheat garnished with lilies in a stunning presentation. And so that's the idea of, of... Wheat that's heaped up there. It's not like huge mass. It's it's this. It's just this beautiful, and the color, the golden color of the wheat with lilies around. It's this great picture. But what it's saying is that she is all he needs. She is stimulating and she is inviting. She is all he needs, and he doesn't need anything else. And he will never need anything else. He just needs her, his shulamit. Wives. May I ask you a personal question? Are you that for your husbands? Are you both stimulating and inviting for your husbands? Because the scripture says, 1 Corinthians 7, 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Not my words, don't throw things at me. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now what's funny about that verse is most women will kind of raise an eyebrow. Men will say, I'm good with both of those. (laughs) Paul says, 1 Corinthians 7.5, Paul says, stop depriving one another. And he's talking, yes, about the sexual relationship in marriage. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. See, the only reason for not coming together as a husband and wife is to pray. Otherwise, have a field day. (laughs) And then he says, devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And by the way, Paul does say after that, but this I say by way of concession, not of command. Probably because something just flew over his left shoulder, you know. (laughs) But he makes a great point. I've had a few of the husbands actually come up to me, more than one, and tell me this study has made them think about and appreciate their wives and the beauty of their wives in a whole new way. It's happened to me. I go home, I went home last Wednesday night and I said, walk in the door and I said, hey, my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. And Cheryl said, what? You know, her hair was tied back, she had an old sweatshirt on. Now, There is application to husbands and wives and to fulfilling each other's needs, but how can this belly dance speak of the church? 
how can this talk about the church? Your navel is like a round goblet which never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is like a heap of wheat fenced about with lilies. Are we not supposed to be filled with bread and wine? Is that not the food of the church? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, John chapter 6, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourself. He who eats My flesh and drinks My blood has eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day. For My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. He who eats My flesh and drinks My blood abides in Me and I in Him. Jesus is big on dinner. Have you noticed that? Throughout the Scriptures... In Revelation, says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He who opens to me, I will come in and we will dine together. Notice when he restored Peter to ministry in John chapter 21, it was at breakfast on the beach. Notice after the resurrection, when the apostles weren't really sure if he was really Jesus or a ghost, he said, Give me a piece of fish, I'll show you. <laughs> Ghosts don't eat fish. And he eats in front of them. And so there's all these meals. Jesus likes to dine with those he loves. Why? Because it's communion. It's communion. Hold that thought. Remember that word as we go further. But the church, filled with the wine of His blood and the wheat or the bread of His flesh, is both stimulating and inviting. Stimulating and inviting. As we are in communion with our Beloved. What do you mean? I mean, we are stimulating to those who are around us in the world. There's something different and there's that stimulation of the Holy Spirit in your life If you're in communion with the Lord, people can't miss it. It's stimulating just to be around someone like that. And inviting. Because the moment they ask, what's up with you? Oh, I just had the greatest Bible study this morning. Oh, I was just walking with the Lord and He told me this or showed me that. It was just wonderful. Stimulating and inviting. Bread and wine. And the dance goes on. Verse 3. Your two breasts are like two fawns twins of a gazelle. Now he said this to her on the wedding night behind closed doors in the appropriate place. Now she's dancing and the daughters of Jerusalem around her. I'm going, (laughs) dude, maybe you should have saved that one for when you're alone. But there's something I didn't point out last time that I want to point out this time having to do with the church. The church. Imagine the two fonts as two fonts curled up at their mother's side nursing. And I think that may actually be the picture that's being given here. Because breasts are beautiful in function as well as in form. What are you saying, Rick? Peter said it in 1 Peter 2, verse 1, putting aside all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and slander, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Our priority as a church body is to nurture people with the pure milk of the Word of God. And so even as he says, your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, there is application there. He goes on in verse 4 and says, your neck is like a tower of of ivory. A tower of ivory. Now, he said before, your neck is like the tower of David. And we were saying how, you know, it's because she, how she was holding herself. You know, she wasn't all glum, head down like some servant girl. She, her head is up. She's confident in her relationship with him. But now it's changed slightly. Not only is her neck like a tower, but it's a tower of ivory. It's beautiful. It's strong. It's solid. And the neck also has an important function. What does the neck do? It holds up the head. It holds up the head. 
Ephesians 5.23, Christ is the head of the church. He Himself, the Savior of the body. So the role of the church is always to be upholding the head. Always holding up the head who is Christ. Never, listen, never diminish His authority, His power, His Lordship, and yes, His deity. We do not diminish Christ as someone lesser than, but we lift Him up as the head of the church and the one who has come and represented God to us. We uphold Him. For God, who said light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.6 The neck upholds the head. He says, Your eyes... Your eyes like the pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bath-Rabim. This is an Amorite city, or it was until it was conquered by Moses in Numbers 21-25. Heshbon. It sat on a high tableland that was directly east of the northern tip of the Dead Sea. So if you know your map of Israel, you know where that is. But it's east of the Dead Sea. The land rises. It's flat up there. But historically, this area, Heshbon, was known to be richly watered and very fertile as a land. And it also boasted two pools. Two large pools that were there, two reservoirs. And so that's what he's describing here. He's thinking about the pools in Heshbon. And he's saying, your eyes are like those pools. I'm I'm looking into your eyes, you're dancing, and I see the clarity and the clearness in your crystal blue eyes. You're like the, the pools in Heshbon. Kyle and Delich say her eyes were either glistening like a water mirror or lovely in appearance, for the Arabian knows no greater pleasure than to look upon clear, gently rippling water. So he's looking in her eyes, and they must have just glistened with cool refreshment. The church should be that way. The church dances that way. We must dance with that kind of clarity. Clear eyes, not with sleepiness that needs to be rubbed out of our eyes. Wide awake, eyes open, sober and clear, and the clear, refreshing presence of the living water of Christ's Spirit in us, so that as we look at the world and the world looks back, Christ is seen. Like the pools in Heshbon. Because this world, like the surrounding area, is dry and desolate and desperately needs the water, the living water of the Spirit of God. He goes on, he says, Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon which faces toward Damascus. Now, he didn't just call her big nose. (laughs) He's calling attention to symmetrical beauty. And again, some of these things, if you back off and look at them, like the flock of goats coming down Mount Gilboa, You see the flock of goats coming down from a distance. That could look like hair coming off the head of a woman. Up close, it looks like a stinky flock of goats. So back up a bit. The Tower of Lebanon, looking at the Tower of Lebanon from a distance, wouldn't look like some big hulking thing hanging off her face. It would be symmetrical and beautiful and sharp and obvious. And he's saying, I see in your nose, I I see that. I see this symmetrical beauty. But note this. The tower of Lebanon also stood as a stronghold to warn against the threat of attack from the Arameans, or later the mighty Assyrians. Tower in Lebanon. It would be a warning tower. Okay, so what? So you're saying her nose is now a battle station? In a manner. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. And I I don't think it's going too far to say this. We have a phrase for it. She has a nose for that kind of thing. 
we would say. Her nose knows, his nose knows. And even in ancient times, the nose spoke of shrewdness and discernment. Able to sniff out a problem. You may have walked in the barn earlier this evening and sniffed out that perhaps there's a dead rodent around here somewhere. And there may very well be. I just hope he's not under the stage. But her nose. Shulamith doesn't have a dull, flat nose up against her face. She has a sharp nose that sniffs out danger and discerns the enemy. And again, I am talking about the church. We should have discerning noses. The church should have a nose like the Tower of Lebanon, able to see danger coming, able to sniff it out. Paul says in Philippians 1.9, This I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. Be discerning. Brian prayed about these last days and how bad things are going and where the world is turning. We as the people of Jesus need to be discerning with the truth in these days. 1 Thessalonians 5.19, I quote this all the time, Do not quench the Spirit. You might as well plug up your nose because you won't be able to smell and warn and discern against what's coming. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. The nose. Verse 5. Your head crowns you like Carmel. And the flowing locks of your head are like purple threads. The king is captivated by your tresses. Flowing purple hair. I got out of the car Tuesday morning to help Naomi and and Monica get out. Monica's around here somewhere. And of course their hair was just sticking out in all directions because it was crazy hair day at Fidalgo School. So this would have been perfect. Purple hair. In fact, a girl got out of the car in front of us and she had on a big, huge wig that was purple hair just shocked out like that. And I thought, oh, I wonder if that's what... It's not what he's talking about. (laughs) Flowing purple hair is a physical description, think about this, of hair that is so black and so luscious that it appears to have tinges of purple to it. So deep is the blackness in it. And to describe this, he recalls Mount Carmel. Towering over present-day Haifa in Israel, they're on the Mediterranean coast, and Mount Carmel is covered roundabout with vineyards, flowing purple. And he thinks about this, and he looks at her dancing at her hair, that, that lovely black hair, and he says, she's just, she's just, she's like Mount Carmel. You know? That fruitful hair coming down in all directions, and it speaks of three things for the church, guys. We've already said our, that the head speaks of Christ, our authority. The head speaking of the authority of Christ. The purple indicating the royalty. And we need to remember from time to time that we are royalty. We are royalty in Christ Jesus. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So chin up, gang. You are royalty in Christ, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. 1 Peter 2.9 We are royalty. The purple indicates that. The flowing hair indicates something else that is critical for the church. The flowing hair speaks of submission. Submission. In one of the more challenging passages of Scripture, we'll get to one day, Lord willing, unless He comes first, and I'm okay with that. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about a woman and her submission. 
And he talks about hair coverings and all kinds of things that, that, again, we'll get into someday. But let me just quote you one verse out of that. 1 Corinthians 11.15 If a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. In another place in that same chapter, he says it's a sign of, a, of authority for the angels. Why for the angels? No one knows. But it's a sign of submission on the head of a woman before God that she has her head covered. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying that that a humble and submissive heart is what the church needs to have. Along with royalty and the head, which is Christ. Put that all together. As the Shulamit dances for her Lord and husband, both are apparent. The royalty in Christ and the submission to the authority of Christ as the head. Royal submission. That is how we as the church are called to follow after our beloved. Verse 7. Your stature is like a palm tree and your breasts are like its clusters. Again with this. Psalm 92. Verse 12, the righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. The palm is still today a beautiful symbol of victory in Israel. Now remember, she's moving. He's watching her dance back and forth. And he sees just in her stature as she's dancing, she's like a flowing palm tree in the breezes coming off the Mediterranean. And there are palm trees that run up and down that coastal side of Israel. It's beautiful. And so she reminds him of that. And he describes her, and then he thinks palm tree. And then like any man, he thinks, and breast. You know, this is where he is. But note this. The palm tree, we talked about this when we studied Psalm 92. It's the only tree that grows more fruitful the older it gets. The older a palm tree, the more fruit it produces. And that's the church. That's what we're supposed to be. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.16, we don't lose heart. Though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. More fruitful, not less. I think of Marge Kimball, precious Marge. If you don't know Marge, you've got to meet her. And keep praying for her in the hospital in Kentucky right now. But, but wow, what, what a beautiful beautiful saint of the Lord who is more fruitful in her life now I mean I can't compare I didn't know her when she was a young lady but as an older woman she is absolutely fruitful for the Lord she is a discipler she loves like few people I've seen and that's the example and that is a picture again of the church and as far as Jesus is concerned this is his intention for his body the church that we continue to grow more fruitful all the way until that day when he comes. Hey the world may get worse but the church doesn't have to. The church can continue to grow in beauty and glory. The church can continue to move forward in fruitfulness for the sake of the kingdom all the way up to final victory. In verse 8, he says, and it's a little graphic, but he says, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit stalks. Oh, that your breasts may be like clusters of the vine, and the fragrance of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. This increasing fruit of the palm tree, the fragrance of apples, the fruit of the vine in her mouth, all of these are pictures of an ever-increasing, ever-fruitful church fellowship, church body. That we grow individually in our fruitfulness for the Lord. That we grow together as the Bridge Christian Fellowship. As a more fruitful body. Always ready to work in the harvest. 
And that is the church in the world continues to grow. We're 2,000 years old now, gang. And I, you know, we can get down on the church sometimes. But I really think if we were allowed God's perspective, if we could get back and look with a wide perspective of the entire last 2,000 years of the church, I think we would be amazed at how fruitful it has been. I think we would be stunned, not at what we have done as the church, but at how the Spirit has moved through Christians throughout the world for 2,000 years, lives saved, cultures changed. You know, I think we would be blown away at what God actually has accomplished. We have a very limited little perspective that's just right now where we live. But the church is growing, and it's growing in fruitfulness. I think we'd be amazed if we could see it. Second Peter 1, verse 5, Peter said, Applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in moral excellence, knowledge. And in knowledge, self-control. And in self-control, perseverance. And in perseverance, godliness. And in godliness, brotherly kindness, Philadelphia. And in brotherly kindness, love, agapao, agape, unconditional love. For he says, if these are yours, and listen, and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what the chorus said at the very beginning, back in verse 10? Who is this that grows like the dawn? Grows like the dawn, the church, ever increasing, always getting better, always growing up to that final day. That's what we're called to. But when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? Jesus asked that question. So ever growing, the church in all its beauty. It is stunning. It's overwhelming. This is Jesus describing His Shulamit. His church. His loved one. She's becoming one now with her beloved. And so He, he says... Your wine or your mouth is like the best wine, and she immediately responds, It goes down smoothly for my beloved, <laughs> flowing gently through the lips of those who fall asleep. What is she saying? She's saying, It's all for you. It's all for you. He says, Your lips are like flowing wine, and she says, Have some. It's for you. I'm here for you. You ever fall asleep praying? Can I just get a show of hands? How many people have started into praying and woke up and went, wow, I don't even know where I stopped. You're just kind of... I've, I've shared before, I think God loves that. It's cool that just about every single one of us have done that. Either we're really tired or we just really love the Lord. But it's true. God loves when His people fall asleep in His arms. When His people fall asleep talking to Him. And she's describing something similar to that. Not a sleep of nightmarish estrangement, but of the ability of her as the loved one to fall into the arms of her beloved and be talking to him as she drifts off to sleep in safe, uninterrupted, protected rest. So she says, It goes down smoothly for my beloved, flowing gently through the lips of those who fall asleep. As we commune with Jesus, something better than wine flows from our lips. Remember what Paul said, don't get drunk with wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And by the way, that there is the single greatest verse, I believe, in the entire Scripture for not drinking. And you make your own decision. But God holds up 
an option. You can have wine. You can buy some good wine at the store. Spend some money, get some expensive stuff. Go out to dinner, get some really good stuff. Or, I mean, you can do that. Have every right. Feel free. Or you can be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I know some are going, can't I do both? (laughs) Hey, you talk to God about that. But that really convicts me. It makes me think, boy, if I'm going to be filled with anything stimulating, anything intoxicating, I want it to be the Spirit of God. I just want it to be His Holy Spirit. And as we're filled with the Spirit, the Spirit, like this wine, flows gently through the lips of those who fall asleep. It goes down smoothly for her beloved. What we say, what we speak, what we share is for our beloved. The things coming out of our mouth of a spiritual nature for our beloved. Now, Shula meets. She takes the mic. She's going to sing for a little bit in response to her beloved. We've seen her outward beauty emerge as he describes her dancing, but now there's an inward beauty, an inward change as well. We looked at it last week. Look at verse 10. She sings, I am my beloved's and his desire is is for me. And this is the arc of the entire Song of Songs. If you missed it last week, I'll repeat it. Songs, verse, chapter 2, verse 16. She starts out by saying, My beloved is mine, and I am his. I chose him. But then by chapter 6, verse 3, she says, No, I am my beloved's. He chose me, and my beloved is mine. So now we're in a dual thing, but she recognizes she's growing He did choose me first. I didn't choose him first like I thought. He actually chose me. But I chose him too, and we're in this dual relationship. Now she comes to chapter 7, verse 10. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. What is she saying? It's all him. It's all him. I belong to him, and he desires me, and that's why I am in a relationship with him. Not because of anything I have ever done. And by the way... This is one of the reasons why the Song of Songs must point to Jesus as the Beloved because no man could handle the weight of total dependency. No man is up to it. No woman is up to it. Husbands, you cannot put that on your wives. You'll crush her. Wives, you cannot put that on your husbands. He can't handle it. But Jesus can. Total dependency in the relationship. 100% Jesus, point 0.0000001% me. Just enough that I happen to be present in the relationship. But everything good that happens, every dance that goes on, every song that is sung, every moment of romance that occurs is because His desire is for me. All I can do is respond to what He is already pouring out. She is maturing. This Shulamite bride. She is coming to a place where she realizes who He is and how special He is. And it kind of makes you wonder, well, if she has total dependency on him and he's pouring everything into the the relationship, what does he get? What does he get in the deal? Well, what does Jesus want out of this? Communion. He wants total communion. A relationship of intimacy and interaction and involvement with her, with us, with the church. And she finally realizes it. She finally says, I want it too. In the little booklet written by Hudson Taylor about this Song of Songs, he calls his booklet Union and Communion. Thoughts on the Song of Songs. Union and Communion. I didn't understand that at first. But it describes the the book beautifully. Union and Communion. This is what Jesus wants, and this is what the Shulamite eventually gets. 
What are you saying? Listen. Union. The marriage is the union. You know? But it's more than paper. Some people just want, I just want the marriage certificate. I want the document that says, see, I'm married now. Some want the prestige. I've seen this. I won't say who, but I'm aware of somebody, not not someone here even, um, but who got married because she just wanted to be married. didn't even really matter who the guy was. She'd wait long enough, just want to be married. Please, let me find some. He's, he'll work. And, and she had the fairy tale wedding, and it was beautiful and wonderful, and three years later they were divorced. It was about the prestige. It wasn't about the man. Union is the ceremony. Union is the marriage. Communion is the person. Not the paper, not the prestige, but the person of Jesus Christ. And that's where sometimes Christians can get sidetracked. That's why we constantly say, not religion, but relationship. Not religion, but relationship. What does that mean? Some people come to Jesus like they're in some kind of contractual agreement. I'm going to sign the document. You know, I've got my membership in a church. I have my baptismal certificate. Which, you know, you can get those when you get baptized in the Jordan. They give you a little certificate. I don't even know where mine is. Because the certificate is not what matters. Some want the piece of paper and they're either uninformed or they're uncertain about the person of Jesus Christ. He doesn't want a relationship that is about a contract. The whole song and our entire faith is a call to union with Christ and an invitation to communion with Jesus, which is why he always wants to have dinner. Because you know what happens over dinner? You sit down you get eye to eye and you talk and you interact and you share yourself. And it's a picture of what Jesus is looking for in this relationship. Revelation 3.21, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. And finally, Shulamit gets it. And she wants it. And so now she starts to call him to be with her. Up until this point, he has always been the one who's come calling. Did you notice that? Early on, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, he's the one who comes to get her. He's the one who comes dancing on the hills. He's the one who shows up. He's the one peering through the lattice. And even in her nightmare, he comes calling to her there at night. Open to me, my beloved. And she says, I can't, I'm in bed. You know, and she doesn't. It's always him, always him. Suddenly, watch this, it's her. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Verse 11. Come, my beloved, she sings. Let us go out into the country. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us rise early and go to the vineyards. And let us see whether the vine has budded and its blossoms have opened and whether the pomegranates have bloomed. There I will give you my love, she says. I mean, she's, she's wanting to now entice and allure him. She's inviting. She's calling him. She says, the mandrakes have given forth fragrance. And over our doors are all choice fruits, both new and old, which I have saved up for you, my beloved. You see what's happening here? The inward change that's going on in her? I mean, she is now doing the inviting. But it's more than that. Look at where she's inviting him to go. Do you remember where she was when we first met her? She was in the vineyard. She was outside. She was working the vineyard. But if you look back and quickly do so, go back to chapter 1. And look at verse 6. 
She says, do not stare at me because I am swarthy, for the sun has burned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me caretaker of the vineyards, but I have not taken care of my own vineyard. There's bitterness here. There's resentment in her, in her labor. I have to work this vineyard because my angry brothers are making me work the vineyard and i got no time to doll myself up. I just have to be out here working the vineyard. And so there's frustration in the vineyard. But now, back over at the end of chapter 7, what happens? Where does Shulamith take her beloved now? To the vineyard. Back outside. Back to the villages. Back to the place that she came from. Back to the fields. What are you saying? What once was a burden to her, now that, now that the beloved is with her, is a blessing. The life that she left to be in the courts of Solomon is the life that she wants to take him back to with her. She wants to be in that life. That life is not so bad when he's there. The life is not so so much of a drudgery if, if he's there. Back to the fields. Because life is completely different when he's there. You get what Jesus does with us? Same thing. Same thing. He says, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. But see, we were Adam and Eve, kicked out of the garden, working the fields. The garden, not even a memory for us. We're out there working the fields by the sweat of our brow in the vineyard, trying to get the job done, and it's not working out so well. And then suddenly Christ comes into a life, and the very work in the vineyard becomes a pleasure. The very life that I wanted to leave with Christ there, it's pretty wonderful. And the more I am with Him, the more that life becomes abundant and marvelous. You know, here's the thing about Jesus. He doesn't come into our lives and say, okay, I'm going I'm to take you away right now. You choose me. You believe me. I'm going to rapture you out of here instantaneously. No, He says, you want me? You love me? That's great. Let's hang out here now. And it's marvelous. It's like the demon-possessed man in the Gadarenes. You know, Jesus crossed over Galilee, comes out to the place of Gadara, and there comes this guy who's absolutely out of his mind, and he's got a, you know, a legion of demons inside of him, and Jesus casts the legion out, they go into the pigs, pigs go into the bay of pigs, you know the whole story. Well, this guy, this guy says, Jesus, I just want to come with you right now, take me away from here. He spent his life, you know, cast out by the people, roaming the tombs, awful stuff, and he says, let me come with you, and Jesus says, no, why don't you go back? You go back and you tell them what I did. And we know from Scripture, the next time Jesus goes back to Gadara, throngs of people come to see Him. Why? Because this guy's life got changed. And that's what Jesus does. He makes it so that we want to go right back to where we were. Not doing the things, not the sin and the, and the you know stuff that we did, but we want to go back where we were and bring Him with us. And that's what she does. Paul said in Philippians 3.8, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. Note that, not position in the church, not a certificate, not a membership, not a religion. I want Christ. I want Jesus. I just want Jesus. Isn't that freeing? I don't know if it's hitting you like it is me right in this moment, but that is so freeing to just say, I want Jesus. 
I don't care what name is out on my church signboard. I don't care what denomination I happen to belong. I just want Jesus. Wherever He is, that's what I want. That's the life I want. To be so enamored with Him, wherever I go, it is abundant. I want to be able to say, and I do say, I am my beloved's, and His desire is for me. So Shulamit, she takes her beloved back to her old haunts. And as the fifth canticle winds down, it's marvelous. We see in her a confident, playful, even childlike tone. Watch this. She sings in verse 1 of chapter 8. Oh, that you were like a brother to me, who nursed at my mother's breast. If I found you outdoors, I would kiss you, and no one would despise me either. I want to be like a sister to you, she says. What? Why is that? Well... Partially because she wishes he had always been there. You know, like if they had been born together, then he would have been right beside her through her whole life, and she thinks that'd be pretty cool. But she also wants to be a sister because public displays of affection in the Middle East, even today, are frowned upon. Unless you're family, then it's cool. A sister and a brother can kiss in public, and no one's going to have a problem with it. And she's saying, I want to be able to kiss you right out in the open. I wish you were like a brother to me so we could be out here in the square and I could kiss you all I wanted. And no one could despise me. No one could say another thing about it. I want to be I want to be a sister to you. Are there limitations in your affection for Jesus? Have you placed perhaps limitations on yourself for how much you will show public displays of affection for Jesus in your life or in worship in the church? woman down on the end of the row always raises her hands and that's just so distracting. You know? That guy sings so loud, I just wish we could, you know, muffle him. It's just so it just really interrupts my quiet personal emotionless worship. Are you afraid to show some PDA? Listen, you won't be in heaven. Because heaven is going to be one glorious nonstop public display of affection for our Jesus. May our familial relationship with Jesus be one of freedom as we express love to Him until He comes. But she says, this is what I want. I want to be free with you. I want to be able to be in public, kiss you if I want to. I want to be with you always. Verse 2. Not only does she say, I want to be like a sister to you, but she says, I want to be like a mother to you. Huh? Read this. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother who used to instruct me. I would give you spiced wine to drink from the juice of my pomegranates. You can probably guess what she means by that. But listen, it was the role of a lady of a house to offer wine to special guests. It was the role of the mother. And she's singing here, I would love to lead you into the house. But she's being playful. The word lead in the Hebrew is nahag. It's used of a superior leading an inferior. And she's not saying, I want to be superior to you. She's saying, I want to mother you. I want to take care of you. Wow, that's, that's kind of wild. Me take care of Jesus? Now, He takes care of me. That's the way this works. She is so enamored with Him, so in love with Him, and the relationship is so well-rounded that she's saying, I'd love to take care of you, if I might. I'd love to do things for you. I'd love to be one of those who ministers to you. Like a mother. She wants to be wife, sister, mother, 
And what's wonderful is she's matured to the point of childlikeness. She's almost giddy in these verses, in what she's saying. Almost silly, but not. She's childlike in the things that she's saying. Oh, I just wish, I wish you could be like my brother. I wish I could be like your mother. I mean, it's just, it's really kind of cute. But note this, it doesn't come out of silliness, it comes out of maturity. As she has matured in her love for him, she is so comfortable, she is so confident that she's childlike. Which is one of the greatest characteristics of a mature follower of Jesus Christ. Childlikeness. Just getting giddy when you hear his name. You know? I'd love to hear his name. You're weird, thanks. Childlike maturity. Jesus said, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Well, finally her dance is over. His song is sung. Her song is sung. And she just says, let his left hand be under my head and his right hand embrace me. And he says, I want you to swear. Strongest language yet. I want you to swear, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not arouse or awaken my love until... She pleases, and she falls into his arms. Let's pray. Jesus, you are our beloved, but you have chosen us, you have enticed us, allured us, drawn us to you. And we recognize, Lord, that your desires for us And there's something in that realization that causes our love for you to overflow. To to bubble up in childlike giddiness that we just want to be anything, all things, everything to you. We know this relationship is dependent upon you to be successful. We know, Father, that the only way that we could ever be with you is your faithfulness, not ours. But for our part, we are so confident, Lord, in Your goodness, in Your mercy, in Your grace and faithfulness, that we just say, Lord, we want to be all things to You. And so, Lord, until the day comes when You raise us up and we get truly eye to eye and can be in Your presence there, Lord, may we dance for You here. In Jesus' name, Amen.